Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Our text is in the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, and we're making our way towards Resurrection Sunday, the first Sunday of April, I believe, is Easter Sunday, and I'm already excited about that. Um, But before the resurrection comes the cross, and before the cross comes Jesus' arrest and his trials, and so we have just entered to a study concerning the passion of the Lord Jesus, that is his sufferings. And so our text this morning, Luke chapter 22, and I want to read verses 54 through 62. Scripture says, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. A servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now last Sunday we saw the betrayal of Judas as he led a mob of soldiers and temple guards and chief priests to the garden of Gethsemane, embraced and kissed the Lord. And Peter pulled out a sword that night and swung, cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest, a young man named Malchus. And Jesus graciously healed Malchus and rebuked Peter for seeking to advance the kingdom of God with violence. And we said last week that the failure of Peter and the other disciples was really a failure to prepare, to listen to Jesus' words of warning, to spend some time in prayer that they not be overcome through temptation. Just listen to Jesus' warning, Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you men like wheat. Now that word men is added because it's a plural pronoun. Sometimes we just think Peter's the only one that Satan wanted to sift like wheat, but it was all the disciples. He's speaking though to Simon, Peter, as a representative of the 12. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail in you, that is Peter, when you've turned back, strengthen your brother's. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. But he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. He said, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. What does that mean? Well, just get the picture. Satan wants to shake you up, to toss you around and do everything he can to separate you from your faith and dependence on Christ. This is what he was doing to the disciples. But the key phrase that I want to focus in this morning is in verse 54. It says, now they arrested him, that's Jesus, led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. P 
Peter was following from afar, in other words. Well, it says they arrested Jesus. So if you get arrested, they're supposed to charge you with something, aren't they? Well, you have to understand that the verdict had already been rendered. In fact, the sentence had already been passed. Verse two of this chapter says that the chief priests sought how they might kill him. So they were determined to kill him. They had passed sentence. Now they had to find a charge. That's just a little bit out of order. Um, they wanted to arrest him under cover of darkness because they wanted to do so without causing a riot. Jesus was very popular among the people. And they also wanted to do it without getting sideways of the Roman authorities and their laws. And so as you can see, the hypocrisy is boundless. That is, they're pretending to arrest Jesus as an act of justice when in fact, this is a premeditated murder. So they brought him to the house of the high priest. Now John tells us in his gospel that it was the house of Annas. Now the Roman government appointed the high priest. Annas no longer was the acting high priest. His son-in-law Caiaphas had become the high priest, but it's very clear through the scripture that Annas really was the power. Everything went through his home. He arranged, we know from history, for five of his sons to hold this title of high priest and his son-in-law. So six members of his family, it was a dynasty and it was very lucrative. It, there, there was compensation through the um, vendors in there in the temple. So uh, it was a large house and it was in closed courtyard, we're told. The Gospel of John tells us that only two of the disciples followed after Jesus after they took him away. Peter, who's named here, and John is um, not willing to name himself. He just says that the disciple that Jesus loved, we assume that to be John. And Peter's often blasted for his impetuousness and his cowardice even, but it's noteworthy that Peter did follow Jesus, although it was from afar while the others went and hid. He was, however, following from a distance. And I think that tells us a lot. Peter was attempting to keep his word he said, though the others abandon you, I won't. But at the same time, he also wanted to keep his life, didn't he? So he wasn't willing to draw too close and identify too closely with Jesus. He had said, even if others abandon you, I, I never will. So technically, he's keeping his word while he's keeping his life. There are many professing Christians, dear one, who are attempting to do the same thing every day of the week. They try to follow Jesus from afar from a distance. And their hope in doing so is not unlike Peter's. They want to preserve their soul. They want to believe that when they die, they'll go to heaven. But at the same time, they're trying to preserve their sinful life and their prominence in the world. And Jesus says, it's not possible. A man can't serve two masters. He'll love the one and hate the other. And Peter is an example of someone who follows Jesus from afar and the path they genuinely follow. So let, let's look at our first point today. It's fellowship with the world. Attempting to follow Jesus from afar in reality is another way of saying fellowship with the world. Look at verse 55. After they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. That is, he was sitting among those who were there to lie about Jesus and to see him ultimately put to death. Now, just hours earlier, Peter had enjoyed sweet fellowship with the other disciples and with the Lord Jesus there in the upper room. Communion, we call it, sweet, intimate fellowship. Now we see him just hours later, warming himself by the fires of those who are seeking to destroy Jesus. 
sitting among his accusers. As I read that verse over and over this week, sitting among the accusers, it was reminding me of a verse, and I finally remembered it, Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Peter had started down that slippery slope, and now he found himself sitting in the seat of scoffers. He didn't want to identify too closely with Jesus. You know people like that. I'm feeling older this week because I got a call from my old college roommate that his son, Walker, graduated boot camp and is now a Marine as of Friday. And we're all very proud of Walker and went back in my mind. I remember Walker was born when his dad and I were in seminary down at Southwestern Seminary. And it was the week of 9-11. He was in the hospital when those buildings came falling down. I think it's appropriate now that he's defending our country. It reminded me of a story of a young man who's very different than Walker, who's very strong in his faith, who was going to go off to boot camp, and he went to his pastor and said, Pastor, I'm a little bit nervous that the other men are going to make fun of me when they find out I'm a Christian. And so he went off to boot camp and came back a couple of months later. He had a furlough, and he was at church on Sunday, and the pastor stopped him and said, Well, how did it go? How did they treat you when they found out? You're a Christian. He said, Pastor, it turns out I didn't have anything to worry about. They never found out. And there may be those of us, not necessarily in the military, but working in a secular field, and we're like Peter. We try to follow Jesus from afar. We don't want anyone to know that we're a Christian because we don't want what follows. Jesus said, A servant's not better than his master. We know that. To follow Jesus closely likely will lead to trouble and persecution. It's a slippery slope, though, when you try to have your life and serve Jesus, too. What you'll find is that before long, you're walking in the counsel of the wicked. Before long, you're standing in the path of sinners. And next thing you know, like Peter, you're sitting in the seat of scoffers. James, the brother of Jesus, in chapter 4 of his epistle, said it a, a little more strongly. A little stronger, I should say. He says, fellowship with the world is enmity with God. You can't be a friend of the world and a friend of God. If you're a friend of the world, that is if you live like they do, and if you have the same philosophy they do, that makes you an enemy of God. Now that doesn't mean that you can't or shouldn't or must not have relationships with lost people. That's why we're in the world, isn't it? To influence a lost and dying world, to, to share the gospel with them. But what it does mean is that you must, as a believer, clearly identify with Christ, and I would add, and his people. Your life and your speech and the way you prioritize your life will certainly give you away as a Christian. Peter didn't want to be given away. He wanted to hide in the shadows, follow Jesus from afar. And so before you know it, sitting among the scoffers, he begins to deny the Lord altogether. Verse 56. And a slave woman, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and staring at him, said, This man was with him as well. But he denied it, saying, I do not know him, woman. And a little later, another person saw him and said, You're one of them too. And Peter says, Man, I'm not. After about an hour had passed, some other man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. Now, last Sunday, I commented on the irony of the arrest of the Lord Jesus. 
It's ironic that a violent mob of perhaps a thousand armed men would come out to arrest the Prince of Peace. It's ironic that this mob came under cover of darkness to try to find the light of the world. But, but here's even further irony in the story. Peter, who an hour earlier had the courage to take on a thousand men with a little bit of sword, now is intimidated by a servant girl. Peter, who believed himself altogether incapable of denying Jesus, does so three times in the span of one evening. Some of the other gospel accounts tell us the third time he cursed, swore with an oath that he didn't know Jesus. That is, he went back to his pattern of speech before he was saved as proof that he wasn't a Christian. Now, you may know someone or more than one person like that. When they're with Christians, they know how to speak of the things of God. But when they're around non-Christians, they spout filth and are indistinguishable from lost people. What they're really doing, perhaps without knowing it, is that they're denying, like Peter, that they even know the Lord at all. And so now let's look at the reproof of the Savior. The reproof of the Savior, verse 60. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. I mentioned last week that no one likes to be rebuked, but it is sometimes necessary, sometimes called for. It's one of the things that the scriptures do for us. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable. It's to our benefit that the scripture points out our sin in our era. So the word reproof and the word rebuke are sometimes used interchangeably in, in the English Bible. They are synonyms. It's a word of disapproval. Now it's interesting that Jesus didn't have to say a word to reprove Peter. He'd already said everything before it had happened. Now I have four children and they all need discipline from time to time. They're like, uh, they have their mother's sin nature, as I often tell them. <laughs> they know better than that. But they all have to be disciplined differently. You find that with your children, if you have multiple children? Some of them, you have to threaten them with an inch of their life. And others, a look at just the right moment is enough to shatter them. You have to be careful. That's what the Bible means when it says, train up a child the way he should go. It really says in the way they are bent. You have to study each of your children to know how you're to train them and to discipline them because all of them are different. Even if they grow up in the same household, share the same DNA in, in many cases. But Peter was a person apparently that he only needed a look from the Savior. So isn't it amazing what the Lord will use to convict us of sin. Now, primarily it's his word, we know that. The Holy Spirit takes the word. When I pray with the staff before um, I preach and when I pray with the deacons before I preach, one of the prayers we often pray is that uh, the word would have its intended effect upon us. That it would convict of sin where that's needed, that it would encourage where that's called for. The word never returns void 
But, but the Lord uses the word in combination with other things, I think, to sanctify us. In, in Peter's case, it was the crow of a rooster. Now, growing up in the country, I, I never thought of the rooster's crow at five o'clock in the morning as a means of sanctification. But in this case, it was. Sometimes, as I said, it's a look. Sometimes it's a sermon. And I would say that one of the greatest means of sanctification in my life these, these last 15 years or so has been my family. When I see them and I see how um, easily, if we don't train them properly, they could be led into sin and to temptation. I know that's true of their dad as well. And since I want them to walk in holiness and purity, I know one of my primary jobs is to set that example for them. And so it's a means of sanctification in my life, raising children and having a godly wife. And the Lord is so gracious, isn't he? Not to let those who are truly his own fall away ultimately. Now come close and listen to this, this is very important. As we think about Peter and as we think about Judas and how differently they reacted to their own sin. It's important to note this, if you are truly a child of God, he will never allow you to ultimately fall away. Through his Holy Spirit, he will convict you of sin that you might repent and turn. The scripture says, those the Lord loves, he disciplines. Remember that Jesus told Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I have prayed that your faith will not fail. Well, it seems like Jesus' prayer was not answered. His faith did fail. We have to understand what that word fail means. It means I have prayed that your faith will not ultimately fail. He said, you're going to deny me three times, but I have prayed that your faith not ultimately fail, that you not abandon me altogether. He says, in fact, what's gonna happen when you repent, your repentance is going to strengthen or help sanctify these other people whose faith is even weaker than yours. Peter was following from afar, but at least he was following we don't know about the other guys, where they were. They were hiding. We know that. So he says, Peter, once you're restored, you're going to be able to, to help other people. Maybe that's a word for someone here today. The Lord is drawing you back to intimacy. You've been following him or attempting to from afar. And you know that there are other people in this church and at your place of business and in your home who need you to be a better example who need you to walk closer to Jesus. First, you must repent. You can't skip that step. A lot of times we want to skip steps to get to the good stuff. You have to repent and turn, confess your sins. Then once you're restored, you'll be able to help other people. And before you repent, generally in the scripture, we find there must be sorrow of the sinner. And that's our fourth point. Very famous verse, and he went out and wept bitterly. Most of secular psychology and even psychiatry to some extent is an attempt to help people feel less guilty, right? You, you, you watch television shows and they'll go to uh, a therapist and they try to help them not to feel guilty about something they've done in their past. Well, something I discovered many years ago I found to be true. Do you know why most people feel guilty? Because they're guilty. 
And it's not a terrible thing to feel guilty. It's kind of like touching your hand to a hot stove and feeling that momentary pain. If you didn't feel that pain, you'd burn your hand for life. It causes you to pull back. And scripture says that sorrow over sin is the proper response to God's reproof. All it took for Peter was a little look from the Lord Jesus and his word came flooding back to him of what Jesus said was going to happen. Now you contrast that with Judas. Think about how Judas responded to his own sin. He went and tried to give the money back and he was so racked with regret, he took his own life. Listen to what 2 Corinthians chapter 10 says. The context of this, of course, is Paul writing to the church at Corinth who had all kinds of problems, theological problems, morality problems, sin problems. And Paul spoke very harshly to them in his first letter, um, probably as harsh as Paul had ever been to any group that he had ministered to. And then he writes the second letter because he'd heard that they had repented and now he's coming back to them as a parent does once their child has been disciplined. He says in verse 10, for the sorrow, he's talking about how they felt so bad reading his first letter. He says, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Both lost people and saved people, if they have a conscience that's not been seared totally, have regret and sorrow when they sin. But it's a little bit of difference. The world, I'm speaking of those who don't know Jesus, they're sorry that they got caught. <laughs> now, when I was a young man, I mean, in my late teenage years, I drove really fast, really fast. Isn't it amazing that the people that have the least amount of experience have the most confidence when it comes to driving? And uh, I used to brag about how quickly I could get from my home in the Arkansas Delta to my dormitory up in the mountains until one night I got pulled over. And I saw that blue light in my mirror, I was sorry. I had regret. But the truth is, I wasn't sorrow because I'd broken the law. I was sorry I had to pay a ticket. This is worldly sorrow. Yes, it caused you to feel bad, sometimes really bad. It comes from being caught. It's guilt. It leads to mental distress. And it often leads to attempts to cover up the sin, to diminish it. It's not really as bad. Well, after all, it's my first ticket. First time I got caught. And, and, then, and then sometimes there's a, a, an attempt to punish self or to reform self. Well, I'll just back it off 20 months or so. But ultimately, it leads to death and eternal separation from God. What I, what I mean by that is if there's never really a true dealing with sin on God's terms, the sorrow really doesn't have any benefit to us. It just causes us distress, and, and sometimes it causes people distress to the point of taking their own life. That's what happened to Judas. Now, on the other hand, Paul says that godly sorrow leads to what? Repentance. And we know that repentance leads to what? Forgiveness, and forgiveness leads to restoration and, and life. And so godly sorrow, like worldly sorrow, is painful. I've heard Brother Lawrence 
pray more than once here for people in our church, particularly young people who we've heard have gotten off into sin, that the Lord would put a hedge of protection, hedge of thorns. That's scriptural. You, you love your kids so much that you pray a hedge of thorns about the meaning if they get to the right or the left, the Lord brings some pain in their life. Not that you want your children to suffer, but you'd rather them suffer a little bit of pain so that in the long term it won't lead to eternal death. That's what God loves us enough to do that. That's what the scripture says when it says he disciplines those he loves and those he loves are those he died for, Christians. Conviction of sin, which leads to confession. What does John say? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It's not just that he gets rid of the guilt. The lost and dying world knows how to numb the guilt. And often they do it through alcohol or illicit drugs or some activity. The Bible says sin has a pleasure for a season. But once that numbing agent has worn off, once that season of pleasure is passed, then the guilt is compounded. It's worse than ever because it never was dealt with. On, on the other hand, godly sorrow leads to conviction of sin, which leads to confession, which is a sign of repentance, which is a prerequisite for salvation. It leads to salvation and peace with God, and it leaves no regret. Now, that's not to say that uh, there's things in our past that we wouldn't change if we could. It just means that we are free of that. It's no longer a, a chain of, of guilt that we have to drag around. Why? Because Jesus died for that on the cross. He's already paid for that. He's already covered that. Now, in conclusion... We're talking about someone in Peter who tried to follow Jesus from a distance, from afar. And one of the things I think we learned from Peter's negative example is that we need to beware as Christians of overconfidence. Peter's problem was a failure to prepare, but why did he fail to prepare? Because he didn't think he needed it. He was the one exception. All these other guys may fall away, but I'm willing to go to prison. I'm willing to die. So Jesus says there at the Garden of Gethsemane, pray that you not be overwhelmed by temptation. What did he do? Went to sleep. He didn't need it. He was too confident in his own sanctification. You know the scripture says that be careful when you're trying to help up another brother or sister in sin that you don't fall into temptation. You have to be pretty confident in your sanctification to reach out to another person in sin and say, let me help you, brother. But even then, we have to be careful that we're not led into temptation. So, so beware of overconfidence in self. You can't be overconfident in the Lord. But be wary that you think that I can't stumble. I'm not capable of that sin. We all are capable of any sin. And then, secondly... If you've been attempting to follow Jesus from afar, draw near to him. One of the most famous passages in the New Testament, book of Revelation, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open, I will come in and sup or fellowship with him and he with me. One of the most misinterpreted scriptures in the Bible. 
You've all heard it a hundred times taught in the context of evangelism. Jesus is standing at your heart's door, unbeliever. Open up and accept him. Well, that's not what that means. We know because this was written to Christians. He's saying, Christian, if you're trying to follow Jesus from a distance, that's not what he wants. He wants intimacy and closeness and fellowship with you, and he's not hiding. And if you're not as close to Jesus as you want to be, it's not his fault. He's willing and ready and able. Adrian Rogers used to say, do you know how close to Jesus you are? As close as you want to be. That's true. A lot of people, they, they start out guns a-blazing as a house of fire when they're converted. And they want to be at church every time the door is open. They want to tell others about Jesus. They read their Bible through three times a year. And then as time goes on, they get to a point of sanctification where they're about as close to Jesus as they care to be. The problem with that, Dr. Jimmy Draper used to say, is that you never drift upstream. That is, you're going to go backwards if you're not making progress. And that's why so many people feel like they're not as close to Jesus as they once were. Well, we know that Jesus hasn't moved and he's not hiding. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If you're willing to be close to me, Jesus is accessible. Paul says in Philippians, one of the things that brings us joy and freedom from anxiety is the Lord is near. He's not just talking about his second coming. That is, he is accessible. He's ready and willing to, to have intimacy and fellowship with you, to have the kind of walk with him that, that you originally said you wanted. And so really, failure to walk closely with the Lord Jesus, I think we have to admit, is sin. Sin. I think we have to put Peter's denial of Jesus in the category of sin. We know it is for one, he lied. That he even knew Jesus. We know lying's a sin. But, but trying to have it both ways is a sin. Trying to, on one hand and among your friends, declaring Jesus is Lord, and among those who don't know him, trying never to have to have it cost you anything by talking like the world and sitting among the scoffers. So what is the remedy, what is the remedy for sin? This one or any other. It's repentance. It's confession. If you're here today and you are at school trying to follow Jesus from afar or at work trying to follow Jesus afar, maybe even in your own household trying to follow Jesus from afar, will you just in the quietness of the moment confess that to Jesus as a sin? Not just something you need to work on, it is a sin to ignore his invitation of intimacy. And then we say, Lord, I, I, I've been like Peter. I'm trying to have it both ways. I'm trying to save my soul and go to heaven when I die without it ever having to identify with you too closely on earth because I know it will cost me. And Father, will you give me boldness? Will you strengthen me? Will you help me to be a clear witness for Jesus Christ, no matter the consequences. Do you think the Lord will answer that prayer? He will. He's ready and willing. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus at all, you really can't identify.
because you're like the other disciples. You're not following Jesus at all. But you can. You can begin on that path of sanctification today. And it begins by coming to Jesus on his terms. As I often say here with outstretched hands, empty hands and outturned pockets, you don't have anything he needs. He has the thing that you need most desperately, and that is forgiveness. The Bible says, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. How do I know? Because this man who denied three times in Jesus' presence that he even knew him, pursued Peter, as we're going to find out, and brought him back and used him in a mighty way. May do that for some here today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And sometimes the word encourages us. Sometimes it rebukes us. And today has been a word of rebuke, even as we see how Peter, the man who was uh, so wanting to be thought of as macho and courageous, tough, reduced to a quivering lump by the accusations of a young girl. Father, his pride was stripped bare and laid open for all the world to see. Father, may we learn from Peter's mistakes, his failure to prepare through prayer, but also, Father, his overconfidence. Having walked with the Lord for over three years as one of his closest disciples, he perhaps began to feel that he was impervious, that, that he was not capable of the same sins other people are. Father, many of us who've been saved a long time, maybe we've slipped into that attitude. We, we've gone as far in sanctification as we care to go. We're as close to Jesus as we care to be. And Father, some of us have drifted backwards. And we feel separate. And we don't know why. And the reason is very clear is that uh, we no longer have pursued intimacy. But it's not that you've moved. You're, you're standing at the door, knocking, waiting, willing, wanting to have that closeness and fellowship that we once knew. And so, Lord, if there's a person here today who's in that condition, I, I pray, Lord, that you would, through your Spirit, convict them of that sin as, as what it is, it's sin, that they would confess it in their own heart, repent of it, and Father, began to do those things that they did before when they were walking closely to you, reading their Bible daily, spending quiet times in prayer and reflection and meditation and making sure they're there anytime God's people meet together. Lord, these are the, the disciplines and the means that you use to keep us close to you. Father, I would pray if there's even one person here today who knows you not as Lord and Savior, that again, your spirit would convict them of their sin and need of a savior and the judgment that is surely to come. And Father, that they would run to you, come to you on your terms and cast themselves before you humbly and cry out for salvation. Father, when these things happen, we'll take no credit for it. We'll give all the glory to whom it is due, the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.